Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Witcher, season two, currently airing on Netflix. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 93%, and the critics' consensus reads, The Witcher's second season expands on its first in all the best ways, and most importantly, it remains a whole lot of fun. My guest today is Roman LeCorbus, cinematographer for the series. Roman, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here, Roman. Listeners, we're going to explicitly spoil Witcher Season 2 and maybe accidentally spoil Season 1, so please catch up before going further. But before we get there, Roman, talk to me about your early career and starting out in the business. Sure. I started on a French cinema school for a couple of years in Paris, France, and then I got the great chance to um, be hired as a trainee on a French movie uh, directed by Jean-François Stevenin and photographed by Pierre Aim, who uh, is well known for uh, The Hate, from, uh, directed by Mathieu Kassovitz. And then I spent quite a few years alongside with him, you know, um, learning, uh, being a, a camera assistant. So um, I was first a second AC, obviously, and then became a first AC. And then he offered me some um, camera operator on, on the camera positions. And then, you know, I was working alongside with other DPs at the same time on other features, obviously. And at the same time, in between two features, I was trying to, um, to do some shorts as a DP, and, uh, which was a great opportunity to be able to, you know, work as an AC on a feature and, and being a DP on, on shorts pretty much at the same time, because you basically apply what you'd learned uh, a few weeks before, <laughs> or you try to. And then, and then I met Lola Doyon, who um, we did a few shorts together. She offered me to be her DP on the fir- her first feature, which was extremely generous from her because it was really the, fr- the first feature for pretty much everyone. I started doing a little bit of commercials and video clips. And that's pretty much when I met Oliver Megaton and then Luc Besson. And, um, and Oliver offered me to be the DP of Colombiana, which was my first uh, big project, huge project for me at that time, that gave me access to the um, American cinema industry and the international features and, and narrative in, in, in general. You know, Roman, going back to the beginning, I get asked often by people who want to start out in film about the value of film school versus going to work on set. And honestly, I tell them neither one is going to be a guaranteed path. It really is a match for what they find. But I'm curious to hear more about your decision to having started school to actually leave and pursue this opportunity as a camera trainee. Did you know that camera was what you wanted to do when you were in school or did the experience itself sell you on that path? To be very honest with you, when I entered film school, I wanted to be a director, which is most of what the kids want to do when they enter, you know, cinema school. It was about 19, 20 years, and all I wanted to do is, is directing. So, no, I, I, I didn't know I was going to go towards the, the camera path. But one thing that uh, cinema school taught me is that to become a director, it, you need to have something to say. And, uh, and it also gave me the, the ability to discover what you can do and what you can tell with the camera. So that, that's the main thing for me that the cinema school gave me. Having said that, you know, as you said, I don't think there is a unique way to enter the cinema. There's obviously multiples. For me, I think being on a set is much more valuable because that's where, you know, it's like, um, it's like the fastest way to learn and it's fun and it's, you know, you're just fascinated by all that energy and all that creative brains that are making stuff and the, and the, um, and the teamwork. So for me, being on a set is much more um, efficient than going through the cinema school. Having said that, I might not have chosen the best cinema school in the world, you know, so I think it really depends. The action, the action is always preferable, I think. (laughs) I know what you mean. Well, jumping us forward then, talk to me about joining the team for The Witcher in season two. To tell you the truth, I think my dear friend, Sean Guest, who's uh, first AD and uh, and also associate producer on on The Witcher, he introduced me to uh, uh, Lauren, 
Lauren Schmidt, the showrunner of, of The Witcher, on season one. And, and um, uh, she interviewed me. We had a very nice um, video call. And um, afterward, she offered me to uh, be part of season one. At this time, I was still shooting on 000. And we had quite a few issues on, on that shoot. Uh, Andrea Riceborough, like had an injury on her leg so we had to stop for a few weeks and the you know the end of the shoot got postponed for uh a few months anyway bottom line is i had to um turn down unfortunately season one and uh and i finished in you know, zero 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 and then a few months before season one came out those guys called me again and offered me season two and i was extremely glad and i obviously said yes and I was I was super glad that they um, remembered me a year after. Now I noticed uh, looking at the Witcher production crew, they do what a lot of shows do these days, where there's actually two directors of photography that are rotating episodes. Although I noticed on season two, you did episodes one, two, five, and eight, which is an unusual split. Yeah, so it's basically about following a director, if I may say. So uh, we had eight episodes, which were four blocks so each block is obviously two episodes and for some reason so Steven Sergic whom I work with was doing block one which is episode one and two and then block two was episode three and four directed by Sarah O'Gorman and uh, JP Gossar doing the cinematography and then that split between five and eight instead of five and six was more of a um, creative choice from you know the producers and also I'm pretty sure that the directors may have participated in that decision. But in the end, Ed Bazalgetti was to do five and eight. So it made more sense to me and for everyone, you know, for not only for me, but for the whole production to stay with the, the same director. So it's more of a, not a scheduling thing, it's more of a um, creative decision and sometimes logistics according to, you know, the planning or the, the schedule of each director that makes them available this episode and, and another one. And then as a DP, it makes more sense to stay with the same director. That makes a lot of sense. I think clearly there's a lot of moving pieces in the scheduling and how episodes come oh, yeah. together, but obviously getting to work with the same director um, makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit about the overall details of the production. From what I understand, you shot in London. Is that exclusively or was there other traveling? No, that's correct. We, uh, we end up shooting um, most of it in Reading. All the the um, action happening in, on backlot in, in studio on stage were shot in in Reading uh, at Arborfield Studio, and then before COVID, before the that world, we were supposed and we actually did some scouts to shoot in Scotland, and I remember we went there at the northwest of Scotland, scouting magnificent places, and then COVID happened, so we brought everything back. You know, we tried to find interesting woods around London, around Reading. I mean, in Berkshire, we tried to find some nice exterior, but it became just impossible to start, as you know, to start traveling and moving a whole crew anywhere else in the world. So the thing we did, uh, however, is that at like about, I would say, early 2021, the VFX team started uh, going to Iceland to shoot someplace and also a little bit in Canary Island. But yeah, we, we had to stay as close as possible to uh, Reading, unfortunately. And so from what you've said, then it sounds like you guys started in early 2020 before COVID led to the shutdown. Is that correct? Yeah, I ac actually started prep in November 2019. And we started the shooting in February 2020. Yeah. With a February start, you didn't have long until things got shut down. And so a lengthy shutdown, when did you guys start back up again towards the end of 2020? We started back prepping mid-July, actually. So we had four months off and uh, we started resuming prep. I mean, although, you know, we were shooting from mid-February till mid-March, right? March 17th, actually, when the whole world shifted. And then I came back to London mid-July. We had to, you know, uh, make sure that everything was up and running, ready. It, it was actually fun because the whole studio, you know, all the offices, stages have been totally empty for four months, obviously. So when we got back there mid-July, 
I remember the electricians and the grips, they had to clean everything. And, and the place was like, in only four months, it was like if no one had, had been there since years, you know, it was kind of weird scheme. So yeah, uh, mid-July and then we resumed shooting mid-August, let's say. Yeah, something like that. And I imagine like every production that we talk about these days, I mean, COVID was an issue, obviously, and how you're doing the work and what can actually be filmed and number of background and such. But were there any specific COVID challenges that, that you guys faced or like many productions, did you just, as productions do, find a way to work through it? I'm sure it must have been extremely challenging for the production because, you know, one of the conditions for us to resume shooting and, and you have to remember it's Pretty soon, I mean, we were not the first, but one of the first team to be able to shoot again. Uh, from what I was hearing, you know, most of the other shows waited, uh, at least smaller shows, waited September, October just to resume shooting. For us to be able to, to resume that early, production had to make um, and to apply a very, very strict protocol. So, for example, we, uh, we had our own lab being able to test the whole unit three times a week. And the lab was inside the studio. So every morning you get parking, get out of your car. First thing you do is go and get tested. Same for all crew. And I don't even know how many people we're talking about. Probably 800, 900, a crazy figure right like this. So in, in terms of logistics and, and organization, must have been a nightmare. And then, of course, the rest of the impact were related to onset sanitary measures, wearing masks, Goggles sometimes. Yeah, also all of the things that we now know and that are unfortunately are becoming like habits, becoming um, our everyday life. It was just the same sort of thing, but much, much more strict. But I have to say it was very, very well organized and taken care of by uh, both Netflix and, and production. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think in about what? Eight months, I think we ended up having maybe 20 positive cases. Professor mentioned to me one day that I think they did 35,000 tests over the course of six months. So, you know, we did pretty good. And obviously the show came together in the end, but again, the effort that it takes to, to put together in those circumstances is extra. I know another thing that people have complained about under COVID conditions is the difficulty of collaborating where we're not able to meet as close or as often as we have on past shoots, but even separate from COVID, I'm curious about the challenges of collaborating when you have multiple directors of photography on a project. In other words, creating that consistent look. And not only in this case where there's two directors of photography going back and forth, but also you have somewhat of a legacy of the first season as far as the look of the show. You know, you're right. You do have that legacy of our first season because it's the second season. Although all the creative producers, I'm talking about, you know, Lauren, obviously, Steve Cobb, Tomek, they were very um, open-minded to let the DP explore directions. And they didn't, and they never like kind of, you know, forced me into one direction. You know that it, it has to make sense with the character. It has to make sense for the fans. It has to make sense for the story we're telling. But uh, we were pretty free when I say we, uh, I'm... I mean, me, myself, and J.P. Gossard and Terry Stacey, we were pretty free to explore stuff as long as it was for the purpose of the story. And we did. I mean, I really wanted to go towards a richer color palette and to explore the saturation and, you know, to be just richer. And I think we did. Not that I don't like season one, but um, this season you travel, uh, I mean, the audience is traveling through different worlds, worlds that for most we haven't seen in season one. So that also gives you quite a lot of freedom to go in a different direction or to go to have like a different approach. As far as working with 3DPs, it's some, something that I always enjoy. I had that experience the first time uh, on the first TV show I did on Marco Polo. That's where I met Gavin and Vanya Sergio, and we became very, very good friends with uh, Vanya Sergio, and actually Xavier Grobe was there as well. It was the first time I was doing a TV show, and I, I, I started season one kind of by myself, you know, doing the pilot, and then Vanya joined the show from episode three, and then Xavier Grobe came, and we did the whole 
season altogether. And then on season two, it was actually the opposite. Vanya started a few weeks before me, and then I came. And I found it, you know, just amazing to be able to share ideas with another DP. You know, it's just always stronger with multiple brains. So it was extremely uh, rewarding, and it, it was, I, I learned a lot from him. And the exact same thing happened here. It's like I arrived at the beginning kind of alone, if I may say, you know, starting prep for the first block with Steven Sergic, the director. And then very soon, JP Gossar arrived and we started sharing stuff uh, about scenes or location that we were sharing, gear, crew, um, visual approach, lenses, camera. I mean, it was extremely... Um, fruitful and interesting because again it's always you know we would always have different ideas everyone has different thoughts or ideas about how to approach a scene and uh, and it's always interesting to hear what they would do if they were in your position and and the same thing happened with terry it was it's it's a way to work that doesn't occur on feature obviously but i think doing tv series is also a good way to not to share the work you know but to communicate amongst each other just to improve the results well, i want to dive deeper into some of the specifics on the episodes uh where you were the dp and so let's start with episode one which i think in some ways encapsulates this challenge we're talking about where you're re-establishing all of the characters you've got a lot of scenes that are almost a continuation from before some wood scenes and some of the keep scenes and such and we also have this uh, set of Neveland's mansion and everything that takes place there, that is kind of a shift from a lot of the other work on the show. Yeah, thanks for asking, because it's exactly that. You know, episode one is a little bit different from the rest of the show, because it could be a story by itself. It could almost be a feature, because the real journey, Geralt and Sirius' journey, actually really starts from episode two when they get to Cameron. And this episode, it's, it's not a transition. It's just a, some sort of fairy tale that has its own flavors, even in terms of the writing, you know, even on the paper from the beginning. It's a little different. So anyway, and it was great because, because it's a kind of a unique episode from a writing standpoint. I had, and when I, I should say we, uh, Stephen Sergic, director, and I, we had even more leverage to, uh, you know, to explore and, and try kind of slightly different directions. And I always found it because of the fairy tale aspect of it that the, this, some of the Disney movie really influenced me. And that's the episode where I thought color should play a role, you know, and we should emphasize the color that were, were already there from the production design, obviously, but, and the costume, amazing costume. And we should push it, you know, we should, we should make sure this is, um, this has um, a different tone. And also there is a lot of, you know, a, there's some sort of poetry, there's that poetic aspect of that guy, that Nivellen that has been cursed and he's like now half boar, half human, and he meets, he meets his Geralt. So you, you introduce a new character through the eyes of Siri and Geralt, and there is a lot of humor, there's a lot of, of fun all around the episode. So um, I, I had a lot of, of fun also seeing Steven's board because Steven Sergic is, you know, usually does a lot of his storyboards himself. And he, he basically storyboards pretty much the whole episode, pretty much, you know, and then show it to you and, the, and then we chat and, and, we, um, and we talk about it. But uh, all his boards were really into that, that, that poetry feel, you know, so... Um, and especially within that house, because there is a lot of tricks and gags that are um, like the food dropping from the ceiling to the table, like the, the zoo drop, like candles that are magically lit by Nivellen. And um, once we found an approach with Stephen uh, that we like, because early, in the early stage of prep, I usually try to, you know, do a mood board scene by scene. Uh, or location by location or and and show it to uh, the director and producer just to make sure you know we have a, a way to start a conversation you know and just to to share my feeling and see if i'm on the right the right track steven responded very well to that to that mood board so we start we start exploring how to how to shoot the scene and it became extremely playful because pretty much all the effect that you can on 
for example, the, the three scenes I mentioned are done practical. It's a combination of camera work, SFX, production design, costume. You know, it's a real teamwork. So there is actually, there is no CG there. Like the, the food is actually dropping from the ceiling. So we had some <laughs> sort of a, of a grid that was suspended over the ceiling and, and you had two or three guys, uh, Ronnie Racky, who is an amazing uh, SFX supervisor, was there and at a certain time he was pulling a string and then you had the meat that was going down and then not a string and you have the dessert. It was just, it was just like, you know, doing, doing cinema the, um, the, the good old way, you know? And uh, same thing for the candles. Uh, Ronnie had a few tricks when Netherlands turns around and Ronnie pushes the multiple, multiple buttons and then you have all the, the candles being being lit all along the corridor. All the rest, though, obviously, uh, Nivellen's face is a very, very heavy CG work, as you know, and brilliantly done, I thought. But um, this episode, the whole episode, is a is a combination of um, how should I, we say artisanat in French, which is you know people who still know um, how to make uh, a shoe or who still know how to make a chair, but you don't buy it over Amazon or you don't buy it about to a big, big, huge factory. There is still guys that know how to make it with their hands. It gave that sort of feeling working on that episode, you know, finding ways to do stuff for real. You can go that path because the poetic dimension of the episode allows you to, to feel, not fake, but to feel a little off, just a little off. You see what I mean? Yes, I do. You know, I want to ask you, when you're talking about the practical effects, I loved the Zotro in that episode. I'm curious to hear how much time or effort or, or how much of a focus it was for you and the director. Thank you again for asking because I love that scene. So to tell you the whole story, it was written, always written on the paper. And as I said, Stephen started storyboarding that scene in a, in a very, and actually in a very precise way. And it became... Um, became a big discussion about okay how are we gonna shoot projected shadows of animated characters dancing and that suddenly become two characters that are killing each other and it's the sort of thing that um, um, leads us to one meeting and nothing comes out of it and then the second meeting a few days later nothing comes out of it and a third meeting and after a few meetings we were more leaning towards the VFX way of doing this and pretty soon we realized that it would become extremely expensive, probably cheesy or not great, but most importantly, extremely expensive because you have to think that you have to remember that all those shadows are also casted over Nivellen's face, which is, you know, his body is real, but all his face is CG. And after, because thank God we are not starting with that scene, it must have been shot early March, I think. So it was probably over the course of week three or four. It was the, you know, the endless subject during prep that we were, how are we going to do this? And then I thought, you know, let's do it for real. And Stephen was totally up for it. So I did some tests with that big, huge video projector that I don't remember the brand or the name, but all I can remember is it was maybe two feet by three feet, you know, that kind of huge thing. You need to be two or three to carry it. That test worked pretty well. So the VFX started designing the image that was going to be projected in a very, again, like it, like if it was coming from a, a lantern, like, so in a very poetic and almost naive way, like, like it should be. And then on the day, actually not on the day, a couple of days before, I did a very long pre-light. And as I knew the shot, I came to the conclusion that I needed uh, at least three of those projectors to be able, you know, when you pan from one wall to another, you need to, you know what you need to cover, basically. You know where you need to, the, the image needs to be projected, etc. So from the moment we made the decision to go with the video projector, it became just a technical challenges. For example, Nivellen is crossing the room, so you have to put the projector or two projectors high enough so you don't touch him, but you touch only the wall. And if you want the casted shadow to be on the wall, then then you lower the project. It just become a very long shoot and very technical, but it was so much, you know, again, that's another thing that's so rewarding when you actually see the effect after all those meetings and after all those discussions, when you actually see 
on a monitor that the simplest way, which is doing on, on actually on camera and the less expensive way actually works. You know, I, I really love that scene. And, and I have also to pay respect to the VFX works because they had to, that's the only thing that needed the help of, of CG World is they reproduced on Nivellen's face all the, all of this projection. And I have to say they did really an amazing work because I myself can, I can tell the difference really. It's just great work. And, and there was moment like the room is dark, the lanterns come down and then the lights are on. All the projects are on at the same time. And then he tells his story. And then before leaving, he takes the lamps and the, uh, the room goes back to darkness. That's another thing about, you know, teamwork, just about how to think. The, the guys from the video and, and the gaffer, Wayne Shield, everyone needs to be on the same timing. You know, I love the magic moments where everything is done on camera. Oh, at least most of the work is done on camera. We could spend the entire episode, I think, digging into specific scenes on this episode of the show. There is one thing I want to ask you about before we move on to talk about episode two, and that is, so Nevelyn's face was largely CGI. And the reason that that struck me when you said it was earlier this season, I did an episode about Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, where the apes were largely practical masks and involved four and a half hours of makeup to get them ready. Of course, that's 2001, and CGI has come a long way since then. What did the actor who's playing Nevelyn, what was his presence? What did he have on his face? How much makeup did he have to do? So basically, he had everything practical except his face. In other words, he had, you know, all the legs uh, are big prosthetic foot of like half boar, half human, half something, you know, so huge prosthetic. Same for his arms and hands, same for his head. On top of his head, he had some sort of big, huge, heavy helmet with furs and everything. Uh, so all costumes, all projects are real, except really his face, so from chin to forehead. And in order for him to be able to drink, speak, uh, and for the VFX to reproduce all his mimics, all his face expressions, he had a, you know, that small Moco camera, like I would say five inches in front of him. And therefore he was able to, uh, and also for the other actors to be able to look in the eye. Also that camera was capturing the eye line, which is extremely important. So they were able to uh, eventually use his own eyes or at least having the uh, expression and the island direction similar to what he had done on set. It's not a new technique because, as you know, they used it on Avatar. The, the industry is using that sort of technique in at, at least 10 or 15 years, I'd say, or 12 years. But it's, uh, it was a, what, what, what is very um, amazing to me is how much of his expressions the VFX department were able to put back on the final creature. But all the rest, like him moving all his uh, body language, you know, the way he walks, the way he turns, the way he gestures, this is all uh, Christopher. This is all him. Yeah, the only thing is is the, the face. That also solves a lot of issues relating to regarding interactions. Like I'm thinking about the snow, for example. If the whole character was you know, a guy dressed up in a blue suit or a green suit, uh, then it becomes another another big, big thing for uh, interactions with, you know, anything. He would take a glass in terms of realism and, and in terms of budget as well. That would be totally different when it's snowing outside and you have a, a flick of snow, you know, coming to his shoulder. I mean, you can imagine how much, how, how of a, a different uh, job that would become without having as much of, uh, of his body parts as uh, real elements. So he was, I guess he was getting, I'm not even sure. I think we're talking about two to three hours every day to get all those prosthetics dressed in. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. So technology has not removed the need for all that prep time and effort into bringing these creatures to life, yeah. but it allows us to reach another level where, again, I think, and the point about final conflict happens out in the snow and all the interactions they have there. I wouldn't even thought about the challenge of trying to do fully CGI character in that. That's, I thought that came together seamlessly. Very impressive. Cool. So let's jump to episode two, where we change locations. It's largely taking place now at the Witcher's Keep. 
we can talk about whatever you want on this, Roman, but what jumps out to me is that fight in the basement lab where Eskel has been turned into a woodland creature. Talk to me, though, about your approach to this scene and, and all the different elements. So, yeah, that, that's another very tricky scene because, again, I mean, another, for other reasons, because Geralt and, and, and Vesemir are fighting a monster that is fully CG, or let's say almost fully CG. So first difficulty, when you play that kind of scene, it all starts from concepts, from uh, production design and uh, VFX about how the creature is going to look like. That big tree, you know, with endless vines coming out of it. Once you see those drawings, those concepts, and you kind of realize the size of the creature, how and where it's going to move and how the vines are going to affect the room and the characters he touches, then you start talking about uh, the nature of the fight and the choreography of the fight. So you basically have Adam Horton, the stunt coordinator, stunt supervisor, who uh, was coming with suggestions and previs of a fight. And then all together with Stephen Sergic, we're going through beats, all those beats, and then uh, sometimes modifying, you know, he should go quicker there, he should hit harder there, or he should go behind him there, or the vice should grab him at this moment and not that moment. You know, you do micro adjustments. And then comes the real question, okay, how are we going to shoot this? And there again, Stephen would go through storyboards, we would review it together. And then when you get an actor, so here, Gerard, who fights some vines, you need to feel that his sword is actually hitting something. Otherwise, you don't buy it, right? So the only thing we could find was to dress up some stun guys with blue suits. And they had some, uh, I'm not sure, I don't know the word in English, you know, those big, you know, those big uh, cylinder that kids use when they learn swimming, you know, this big cylinder of foam. Oh, so you're talking about like pool noodles, I think is what we call them. What do you call them in French? Are they called pool noodles as well? Or is there another phrase for it? We actually call it frites, which would be French fries. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We attach those cylinders that were about, uh, I don't know, like two, three meters long to a stick. And basically those two or three stunts dressed up in blue were trying to reproduce what the vines would do so Henry would have something to hit and that's the only way you buy the shark otherwise if he was simulating to hit something you would never buy it so it was kind of a interesting choreography I have to be more precise I have to say also we also had a previous done by the VFX guys following Steven storyboards and uh, and all those meetings the VFX did a previous otherwise it becomes extremely extremely tricky to, to shoot because it's a very long scene so we knew it's even more precise than a storyboard for, you know, all the departments. So we knew precisely where the vines uh, needed to come from, where they were going, and also the timings for Henry and, and Geralt and Vesemir of where he had trained a lot with the stunts. And uh, he knew precisely that a vine was coming from the top of the room at this moment, and then two seconds later, another vine. So it was about for him, learning all the fight by heart after having watched the previews and rehearsed with the stunts for, uh, I don't even know how many hours, but believe me, a long time. Yeah, and then for the crew members to know the fight as best as possible, just to pick up the good camera angles and, and to make sure it was making sense. And then, again, because it's a very, very heavy show in terms of SFX, pretty soon comes the question, like, a Vines is going to, hit that column, for example. So in theory, that column should either shake or there should be a little bit of stone coming out of it or for the least, some dust. All those tricks are um, enhanced by the, the SFX department that, that have their own secret recipes to make sure all the interactions with what's going to become the CG monster is actually, you know, actually real, seems realistic. And then the last, one of the last thing is making sure the light interaction makes sense as well. For example, there's a moment in that scene where Geralt is uh, attached to the column uh, at about two, three meters high. And there's that big vine that's holding him. 
So he had that old big of foam cylinder, let's call it like this, attached to him. And he suddenly grabbed a torches and he burns the vines of the creature of Eskel. He then goes down to the floor and kind of chase Eskel with the torches and, and burn his chest. Obviously, you're not going to put real fire just next to Henry's head and ask him to, <laughs> you know, burn the vine above his elbow. So, you know, we, we, we came with uh, some LED practical light gag that we put inside a, a torch. That's another moment where two departments have to communicate in a very, very uh, easy way and collaborative and constructive way. So Ronnie and, and Wayne came up with that torches that we could uh, adjust in color and in density and in everything uh, wireless so Henry could do whatever he he needed to do in a, in a safe way. And also that would add, you know, a little bit more of that realism because the color effect of the fire would obviously affect his face, but also the monster. So all those intricacies are, are, are all joined together and linked together. It, it also means you have a VFX supervisor. Uh, his name is Daddy. Uh, he's a great, great VFX supervisor, always on set. And, you know, after each take, we would discuss, obviously, first with Stephen, but we will also settle back with the camera up, James Freighter and Daddy, the VFX supervisor, to make sure that it's going to work, you know? Again, teamwork. <laughs> you know, I do have to note that this battle with the woodland creature in the lab, it did trigger memories of another woodland-based creature from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm curious how these similarities might have played out on set. Yeah, you know, it's all, it's the kind of scene when you shoot it, not, not all the time, but as opposed to a, a classical, as I may say, dialogue scene on those kind of very heavy uh, SFX and CG and camera um, intricacies, you end up waiting from time to time. And when you wait, when a crew is waiting, there's, you know, always someone or a few people that are going to start cracking jokes. Or, especially the first time you actually see that monster coming on set with half prosthetic, half blue. I can't, I'm not sure who that was. It probably was James Freighter because that's really his pile of humor. So James may have called him Groot the first time he came on set. And I must say, everyone starts laughing uh, <laughs> for a few minutes and then it kind of stays. So when we were not calling Eskel the actor, Groot, obviously, but the double became Groot for the whole crew, yeah. <laughs> And about how long does it take to shoot a scene like that? Good question. I need to double check, but I think we're talking about six to eight days, plus a little bit of second unit for inserts that we miss, like a, a sword hitting a, a column, for example, or small tight close-ups, insert close-ups. They may have worked uh, half a day or maybe one day, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in total... I think we're talking about around eight days. Possibly. Wow. And so how long do you get for an episode overall on The Witcher, typically? Or does it depend on the episode? So on The Witcher, pre-COVID, <laughs> we were supposed to shoot block one in about 37 days. So that would be 16 and a half days. Between, yeah, between 17 and 18 days per episode, which is a pretty good amount of days for a TV show. And then... COVID happened. So because of all those protocols, the days had to be shortened because, you know, the crew has to clean all the gear after wrap. When you come on set, there is all those tests. There is no more like running buffet because you cannot, cannot have food delivered on set during those because of the, the COVID and all, all that, that mess. So we got some extra time after COVID just because we were getting shorter days, basically. I'm not sure how many days. To tell it to you, I think we ended up shooting Blood One in 68 days, but I'm not sure I have the right to say it, to be honest, <laughs> because it's, it's like, you know, ridiculous. But it's an impressive commitment on the part of the production company and Netflix to give you the days you need to do these sort of scenes rather than a typical, you know, eight, 10 days can be generous on a typical TV show, but it seems like you guys really got the room to, to do it right. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It was, it was carefully planned. You know, it's on every shoot, you miss time, you miss money. It's like 
on even on the biggest shoot is the same game than on the small ones all the time and it's normal and i and i also think because you're missing time because you're missing money because you don't have all the time what you want that pushes you to become more creative and i think that's the case for every project but most importantly i think it's the case for all departments you know the only way to make you think through stuff uh more is when you have to face uh, an obstacle right but yes it it was very well planned and i think i don't see how we would have made that show with a smaller schedule to be honest well moving on to your next episode roman episode five what struck me was the sequence around the memory tavern that didn't turns into a dreamscape then there's these visions of fire The, the whole bit is very deliberate i should say and not just in capturing it, but in creating sort of these feelings of almost this ethereal extra space. But I don't want to put words in your mouth, Roman. You saw it on the paper originally. How did we get to what we see on screen? I think the the main thing that, at least one of the first thing we start focusing on with Ed Basalgeti, the director, was the transitions between all those worlds. Not only because it's more interesting visually, but because... Ed was really uh, convinced uh, that if all those parts were merged and linked together, like, you know, uh, Trace and Siri uh, going from one world to another, but from the same place, like a seamless transition, that would really help all that part of the episode. Um, that, would, that would make it more surreal and more surprising. So we spend a lot of time working on all those transitions. For example, the doll Duja, because that's how it's called, um, that Trist initiates, she initiates in Siri's cell in Camoran. And Siri starts laying down to Trist's nap. And then when she stands again, they're in the tavern. So we basically shot the first part of Siri laying down to Trist's uh, laps on the cell. And then we brought the bed and the carpet and you know a couple of of uh, furnitures, if I remember correctly, to the tavern. And instead of doing a seamless cut, we just use a you know a normal cut. So I think the last time you see, um, if I remember correctly, again, the last time you see Siri on the cell, it's kind of a profile, and then you cut to a top shot on Siri, and we're already on the tavern. And because you see the bed, you know, on the background, you think for you're convinced for two or three seconds that you're in the same place. And then when she stands, Bob, Bob, there you go, you're, you're in the tavern. And then same thing for all their movement through the tavern. We did a long steady cam move all around. We wanted to have as less cuts as possible to sell the previous and the next transition. And then they enter Cameron's corridor again, an unspecific cor- uh, Cameron's corridor. And on this one, we use, the, we use a, a, some sort of a poor man's motion control. So it's just basically the Steadicam operator repeating the same move and the VFX used the wall behind them to do a seamless cut because it was, you know, that part of the wall was fading to black. So it's easier to blend, to blend in and to merge with the next location. And then last example would be a little bit later on that scene, you know, same spirit, uh, except that we use the motion control for that time. So we are behind the girls pushing through a corridor and until they enter a room where Siri sees her parents and we use the camera in that corridor. We recorded the move um, using that uh, motion capture on a, on a techno crane and then we just moved the crane to the other location the, because obviously that room was on another set. And as you know, you push a button on the crane. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but basically it's this. You push a button on the crane, you, you say play, and... The crane reproduces the same move, except that the beginning of the move doesn't count because it's on the previous location. And the end of the move is what you're going to use because the camera enters the room. I, I hope it makes sense. But that's basically all those transitions are a combination of motion capture for some poor man's, old man's, you know, cheat, the old cheats, old fashioned cheats with a little bit of physics help for others. And the oldest way also to uh, to do a trick on the screen, which is uh, moving the furniture and, and moving the people. Uh, actually, another funny one is when they enter the tavern. So I mentioned that top shot. We brought the bed off the cell 
in the tavern and the shot starts on her lying down and then she stands and the camera starts moving with Tris and Siri. During that time, because we wanted that shot to be a single shot, you have a bunch of guys from props who are actually getting rid of that bed as fast as they can because eventually at the end of that shot, the camera turns around and you see that the room where the bed was staying like seconds ago is just part of, you know, another space in the tavern. So you have a bunch of guys rolling the carpet, taking the bed, throwing the bed through the door outside because we're on the back lot, putting back a bench and chairs and, and you have four or five actors entering the room as quick as they can, seating and then pretending just that, you know, nothing happened and they, were, they, they always were there. That's kind of a funny trick also that it always works. It's only a question of timing that we use a lot of takes to make it right, should I say. And then there is that other world where Siri sees the, the wild hunt and which is like, you know, it's, it's like um, another planet with uh, like three suns, a very different color, um, which was this one was uh, needed a lot of um, VFX help because we shot the, all the horses with the riders on a beach. I can't remember where it was. And to be totally honest with you, it was actually J.P. Gossard who shot that for me because I, was, I, I had to uh, leave the set for a few days. And they rotoscope all those riders and they put it back in a landscape, desertic landscape, uh, using plates. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's funny because that doesn't, all those scenes, they don't last super long over the course of the episode. But in terms of shooting days, that, that represents a lot. Lots of location, every every places, every scene needs to have a dreamy feel and needs to feel as different as the previous one. But at the same time, it's part of the same dream. So it's tricky, but it was fun, fun to shoot. Before we move on to episode eight, there was something you mentioned earlier when we were talking about you still being given the room to be creative and to bring your vision. And it reminded me of the opening scene of this episode, which takes place in the Sintra prison, where they're freeing a wizard who's going to go on the hunt. Anyway, if people have seen the show, they know the opening scene I'm talking about. But there's a lot of Dutch angles, and the lighting's very distinct. The close-ups are very specific. I think there's even maybe a fisheye lens, all very deliberate decisions. And I'm curious if this was brought you a storyboard, or is this where you get to sort of bring your creativity and ideas to how it's going to be filmed? That's a great question, because that also I'm going to be able to relate to what I was, what you were asking earlier about multiple DPs and sharing stuff. So first, as far as, you know, being able to bring your ideas and, and how your creativity is seen on, on, on a show like this, to tell you the, the entire truth, I watch the dailies of the episode I shoot, but also of the other DPs and other directors over the course of the shoot. I think on episode three or four, I can't remember, I think it's three, JP shot an amazing scene in the hut, or was it with Yennefer? I, I I'm sorry, I can't remember which scene, but he shot that entire scene using a 12 mil. I, I thought it was so brilliant because, not only because it looked good, but it's actually Yennefer being tortured. And, um, and I thought it was so smart to use, you know, such a wide lens, a wide fisheye for that scene, which is torturous scene, because it makes it more freaky and more dramatic. And then months later, maybe six months later, we start talking about that opening scene with Ed Basalgetti. And uh, I mentioned to him that, you know, the scene that JP had shot six months earlier. And it needed also to be freaky. It's a, a prison we've never been to, but we discovered that Brilliant character who's kind of a badass magician that you don't really want to cross in the street, you know? And we thought how to make him even more freaky, how to make that scene even more um, uh, frightening. And so I thought, I think we should try what JP did because I, it worked brilliantly. And it's, you know, it's like two episodes later. I don't think it's going to be copying someone or I don't think the, the audience is going to feel like, oh, again, because it's a different location, different actors, different stories. So, and Ed was all for it, so we decided to shoot it like this. Now, remember earlier I said that I had to leave the set for a few days for personal reasons, and my friend JP replaced me for those days, and he actually shot that scene. 
it was not a location that we were sharing. So I had done some sort of a vague pre-light a few days before with Wayne Chills, the gaffer, and JP, you know, came to me and said, oh, how do you want to shoot this? And I said, you know, I, the only thing that we really discussed with Ed is shooting with the 12 mil because what I've seen that you've done with the 12 mil six months ago is fucking good, mate. So <laughs> I think it's a great approach. And he said, okay. And he shot it. And I think it's great because he shot everything with the 12 mil, but he added the touchy angle. He added a little bit of funkiness, creepiness more than funkiness. So that's one of the examples of shooting a TV show with multiple DP, you know? And, and I think it's a great scene. I think he, he did a terrific job and I probably wouldn't have done, you know, any better for sure. It's also rewarding to see in your episode the work of someone else. You see what I mean? It's, I, I think it's very nice. Um, and not only because we're friends, just because I think um, it gives another sensibility and another approach to it. So episode eight, the dominant scene, and it's got to be most of the episode, is where the witchers face off with the basilisks in their hall. I asked you earlier about how long it took to shoot the Groot fight scene, if you will. How many days are committed to something like this battle with the basilisks? Again, I would need to check the schedule, but I think we're talking about 15 to 17 days, at least something like this. Yeah, plus a little bit more of second unit than the Groot fight. Yeah, no, it's it's um, massive. <laughs> it, I mean, it, when I say it's massive, it, I mean, for a TV show, having the ability to spend that much time on the scene is great. It's a blessing and, I, and, and that's the right way to approach it. But it's a very long fight. It's actually in two locations because you have the interior and the exterior. There is so many elements and this is obviously extremely heavy in terms of CG. It, it's a very graphic-driven scene. I mean, from a shooting perspective, obviously. But, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same way of approaching it. It's the first watching concept from close collaborations between VFX and production design. Because you know the location, you know, you have been shooting there for weeks and weeks and weeks. So you, you know the location. But the creature, okay, how big is it? Uh, how does it move, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, stunts choreography, along with VFX suggestions, along with, you know, big discussions, big meetings with involving director, VFX, stunts, camera, ADs, and little by little you come to some sort of a previs. So as opposed to SQL fight in the basement lab, we were not able to have a preview of all that scene. Uh, we, we had a rough run at the, at the very early beginning that the VFX came and, and showed to us, which was very interesting. But then when you start adjusting things and Ed wanted to, you know, change a few things or change the action a little bit and change the shot, there, there's no way you're going to redo a preview for each modification because that would, that would take a lot of time and that would be extremely expensive. So it became some sort of a, you have a previs, you have board, and you have also a stunt previs. And with those three documents, you get your way, you know, through the scene. But it, it's, it's very, very technical for everyone. I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's fun, but um, again, you end up with three guys in blue suits holding uh, sometimes two of our pool noodles or whatever, foam noodles, <laughs> and uh, trying to, yeah, Fritz, <laughs> and, you know, trying to reproduce the, the, the move of the beast. We had also a couple of very nicely sculpted green heads that were almost looking alike, the, the uh, CG creature, but all the, the consequences you know, a creature that moves from there to there is obviously going to cast a shadow depending on which side of the room it is, cast the shadow on the floor, but on the actors, on everything. So the CG is doing 80% of the work at least. But you just need to make sure that you are making all the light interaction correct and as realistic as possible. It's like all the creative nature of such a scene happens on a meeting room. And from the moment we're on set, it's about facing 
technical challenges and trying to uh, put on camera what we decided. But God, there is so, so many. There is also cable work uh, that was used from Stun because obviously when a character flies from one side to the other side of the room, just because he got kicked by the tail of one of the basilisks, it's about sinking the, the, the hit of the, the guy in blue suit, sinking with the cable that would bring the guy, the, one of the witcher hitting the colon. And then again, like in the, in the basement lab fight, uh, making sure that you're going to have debris and, and dust coming out of the columns. And so it's all those micro, micro details. The more of it you put and the more you're going to buy it and the more it's going to feel real. And we tried to focus as much as we could on, on those little details of interaction. It was a very, very long fight that we needed to break, you know, scene by scene, moments by moments. There's also all the outside, you know, all the fight happening on the terrace with the big white basilisk. That's another example where obviously Gerald had to fight against a, one of the sculpted uh, foam green heads for the same purposes, you know to make sure you feel the heat of his fist or of the, of the sword. And that's kind of a, um, that can be a little bit disorientating because this was all against green screen. So basically the terrace is real, but all around us is green world. You have the terrace and, sorry, the entrance of Thermoren's Great Hall. That's always challenging for ADP because you just see a green screen around you, you know? So uh reproducing and and to be honest with you that's a challenge i kind of like because uh i mean because you have to imagine and i find it challenging but very very in, in a good way um the vfx had that great tool there they had an ipad and basically wherever you pointed the ipad you could see how the the, the rest of the set and the surrounding were going to look like wow really like on the set you could hold the ipad up and it was as if they had filled in the visual effects for that portion Exactly. You know, it's, it's not fully textured and everything, but you get a very good sense, uh, a super good sense of where the rocks, where the mountain is, where the tower of Cameron is and everything. So if, for example, I was to put like the sun here, I would double check with the VFX guys yeah, that to make sure you don't put the sun behind a mountain or something like that. And that was a very, very useful toy. It, it's another moment of a... A team where you just want to make sure everything is going to blend in. And I was also impressed by, for example, the VFX department, all the surrounding, that's what you can see outside Cameron. It's actually a location that we scouted. You know, remember that location in Scotland that we ended up shooting somewhere else, closer to London. All this, all the surrounding, the rocks that are there, the sky, the mountain behind, is actually a location that we wanted to shoot plates and all the approach of Siri and Gerard when they come to Cameron by horses, when they go away, when Yennefer on episode eight Yennefer and uh, and Gerard come back on their galloping horses. All the exteriors were supposed to shoot there. And because we couldn't obviously, the VFX spent uh, a few days doing photogrammetry in this location in order to have I don't know how many thousands of high-res photo of the place so they could then, you know, fill all those green screen with the proper location. So in a way, it was frustrating to shoot again green screen because you like, <laughs> if, if, if COVID hasn't been there, we could maybe have shot there. But and on, on the other hand, it's, it's kind of a cool technical challenge that I find fun. And also you have, you know, the ability of controlling more the event because you're on the stage, so it, it makes it easier. So I'm curious when you have a scene like the Bascus battle, and yet it's intercut with this banquet scene that is a completely different style. Talk to me about the challenges of filming these scenes, knowing how they're going to intercut. I think the key, because we're talking about the only link between those two scenes, to the, those two universes, is theory, right? So... And I, and I think from a writing perspective and a storytelling standpoint, I think it's clear and very obvious for the audience that, you know, she's going to uh, uh, between a, the, real, the reality where her body is like uh, haunted by Paulette Mare and, and her dream. So because this information is very clear, I think it's about making those two scenes as 
look like as different as possible. Uh, that goes with the lighting, but that also goes with the camera work. Uh, for all the banquet scenes and her going back to the ballroom, we try to have a, as much as possible, kind of a very much of a floating camera style uh, intercut with some static shots, as opposed to all the Basilisk fights with which we treated like uh, an action as an action scene, as simply as that. Which, as you said, you know, it's a mix of uh, steady cam, but we also have crane handheld. Uh, is is the kind of scene where we are now the audience i mean is is very used to see a mix of styles especially for uh over the course of an action scene it probably would have been harder 20 years ago but there, there's so much way to tell a story and and especially for an action scenes i find it's very easy to mix the style but um As I said, the key was to make it as different as possible. So for all the dream uh, and the flashback scenes, we tried to stick to one rule, which was floatiness and being as wide as possible, meaning wide lenses close to the character. We're shooting large formats. Um, so you basically see much more of the world when you're on a set. Wide and close as much as possible whereas the fight is treated more with, you know, biased kind of lenses and, and the language varies a little bit because it's about the efficiency of the storytelling. We talked also about the way it would be edited. There is also some of some transition that Basel Getty was very uh, attached to and, and worked a lot thinking about those. And some of them are very seamless, the transition, some are less, but... Uh, It doesn't matter because I think as long as you have two styles that are almost opposed to each other, uh, that helps selling the, the story. I've already tipped my hand, Roman, that I thought the series came together great. It looks great. All these various elements come together very well. But a lot of it you don't see until it's actually finished. We talk about the editing and the visual effects. And going back and revisiting the series yourself, what are your thoughts about how it all came together? I'm very proud of it. To be honest, I think my favorite episode is episode one for the reason I mentioned earlier, because of the poetic feeling of it. And uh, no, I, I'm, I'm very proud to uh, have been part of that adventure. I'm glad that I also had the occasion, you know, to work with JP and, and get to know Terry and met all those directors, met, you know, Steven Sergic, who I admire, and, and Ed was I'll get to. And um, listen, from What I hear from, it's when you work on a project, as I'm sure you know, it becomes very difficult to be objective, at least for a few years. But I, I think we did a great show. And to be honest, um, the most sincere of my friends who usually have no problem telling me that, you know, that job, that feature that I did sucks. Uh, <laughs> on this one, they are telling me that they find it, they find it great. So I do believe them. <laughs> Well, I don't know where Netflix is in planning for season three, but are you planning to go back? Uh, no, I'm actually not planning to go back on this one because I had other projects aligned and uh, shorter as well because working on a TV show is a very, very long commitment. And I've been doing this twice in a row, zero, zero, zero. And, and that one, I wanted to come back to features and a little bit smaller projects, smaller in terms of time duration maybe season four who knows <laughs> maybe season four well Roman, where next will we see your work either something that's in editing and post-production now or anything you can tell us about what you're working on believe it or not i just finished a short feature directed from a longtime friend and that's what i'm working on and i find it always very important to change you know uh, and it's very interesting to do a very small budget short feature I think we had about $30,000 to make it. And it's very interesting for the mind. It keeps me fresh and it keeps me, uh, you know, it's important to face challenges. So that's the last thing I did just before Christmas. A few options are in the hat for uh, next month. 
but to tell you the truth, I'm not sure which one I'm gonna go for. It's still in the in the in the work, in the process. Well, Roman, I hope you find what you're looking for. Very much appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your insights and the work that went into The Witcher. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Listeners, Season 10 rolls on. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, belowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. We're also on INDB, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, please tell your friends. We'll be back again next week.